Yes, yes, y'all. We are back once again with another episode of the Ruby Steps Podcast. And today, I talk with Justin Searles, who runs a software consultancy out of Columbus, Ohio, called Test Double. Test Double has a unique consulting model that Justin's going to tell us all about. He also explains his Jenga model of learning, which illustrates all the different layers that are involved when you use a piece of complex software. Finally, he gives three great tips on what you should do to keep learning and advance your career as a software developer. Test Double is for hire and they're hiring, so if you want to be a Test Double agent or you want to work with Test Double agents, give them an email at justin at testdouble.com. Without further ado, allow me to present Justin Searles on the Ruby Steps podcast. So hey, we're here with Justin Searles, and uh, where are you calling from, or where are you in the world, Justin? I am in Columbus, Ohio. Okay, and what are you, what do you do in Columbus, Ohio, for the people that may not have seen some of your stuff yet? Yeah, so uh, if you don't know me, hello. Uh, I am a software developer that uh, uh, is also a lifelong, I guess professionally anyway, consultant. Uh, so, so I've always been in the business of helping other companies uh, either improve their systems, build new stuff, or help level up their teams. Uh, and I help run a uh, software agency called Test Double. Uh, and we've got about 20 other, uh, we like to say, business consultants who also write excellent software <laughs> uh, uh, folks. And we're all distributed around the country. Uh, and uh, that is uh, my pitch. <laughs> cool. Well, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Um, so tell me a little bit more about how Test Double works, because you guys have a unique approach to consulting, and in particular, how you work with your developers, your employees. In fact, when I was listening to your Ruby Rogues session the other day, you said something that really caught my attention, which was like, I'm the boss, but I don't really know what my employees are doing or when they're working most of the time. Is that for yeah. real? Like, what's up with that? Well, I mean, um, there is, there's a lot of directions that I could take that answer. But the, to, to address the last thing that you said first, I think that really good developers tend to be very introspective. Um, they tend to, to seek validation that, you know, they're doing a good job from a lot of different angles. Like, in, like structured in objectives ways, we can try to tell whether or not our code is good or not, but a big part of that is, you know, seeking external validation from others, um, as well as, like, how we're writing it, the, the processes that we use and when we write it and the tools we use and, and the, the words that we say and stuff. And one of the things that I've really appreciated about being a fully distributed company where everyone is, you know, located separately is that no one, you know, who has that very introspective mindset can ever worry that their boss is looking over their shoulder. Um, that was always something that really drove me nuts in past jobs because I just care so much about doing everything really, really well that knowing that, like, for example, I, when I was doing, like, you know, very corporate uh, enterprise consulting, you know, knowing that my ThinkPad was locked down with, quote-unquote, productivity software where people could spy on every single thing that I did, th th that was the stuff that would live in my head all day. Wait, um, is that, wait, sir, was that something, like, people are, like, a remote viewing thing and they just kind of log in and see if you're actually doing what you say you're doing? 
Well, n- nobody knew. I mean, it was just uh, 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 they had back doors into everything. Um, so my first job, even though it was like located after that, the fact that I was handed like a sealed MacBook that I knew that they didn't have spyware all over it uh, was a, a huge boon to my personal productivity because it cleared up that whole section of my brain that was paranoid about people watching over me. Yeah. Um, uh, I think that the funny thing about remote work was even for the first year, and we see this when we hire people uh, who, who haven't done remote work before, even for the first year, it's almost like you have this boss, your boss key, you know, remember from old DOS games? Yeah. You still have your finger on that as if there's a guy that's like floating behind you judging you. Uh, and it's taken me several years of working remotely to finally realize like, no, I'm actually like almost all of the problems and difficulties that I have about how I'm interfacing with my job are actually in my own, in my own head. Uh, and they're things that other people can help me with and unblock me, but it's not because there's any extrinsic pressure being placed on me per se. And that's, I think, this inversion that I really love because instead of uh, having, you know, defining your happiness with your employer as how are they uh, limiting or lessening the amount of control that they exert over you, uh, instead of starting with like a, a space of zero control that's being, you know, exerted onto you, uh, the kinds of problems and, and issues that our employees come up with are really, you know, more ones of professional development. You know, like, uh, when, when, when they're blocked or they feel like they're a problem or they're not pairing enough or something, it's not because somebody's limiting them from doing that. Uh, it's because, uh, uh, you know, for whatever reason, we tend to feel constrained and unable to take advantage of the freedoms that we do have. So helping people, like, overcome that kind of, you know, lack of confidence and lack of comfort in, in doing their job the way that they think is best is a really, you know, it, it, it makes being a boss fun in a way. Uh, and that's because you're not really a boss at all, right? Yeah, that's so cool. So it sounds to me like the kind of core difference there is one of trust right from the beginning, that instead right. of instead of being fearful that people are not doing what you tell them to do or are actively looking to screw you over, um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I kind of interpret it as you say, hey, I trust you to do good work and to not you know, to, to not take advantage of this freedom and to screw us over. I expect you to make mistakes, and when you make mistakes, we'll work through that and improve. If you screw me over, that'll be a problem, and we'll see if we can improve that, but probably I'll just say bye and find, you know, and stick with the people that I can trust. And is, is that a fair characterization? Yep, you know, and, and it means that uh, uh, we're, it's aligned well with, like, our business model because a lot of other, like, broadening out now a little bit, like, one thing that sets Test Double apart from a lot of other, um, you know, software agencies is that we're not selling that we have some sort of ivory tower perfect process figured out and we're going to just, you know, take your, the client's problem and punch it through our machine and then it's going to come out the other end and we're going to be just developing you some golden thing. Uh, instead, we're very, um, you know, we, we acknowledge that software is messy and gooey and poorly understood um, and that as a, as a buyer of software services, you're looking for confidence wherever you can find it. And I think the people who are, um, you know, business people who are less technical, you know, they try to control the things that they can understand. You know, they can understand where somebody's working and what hours they're working and the tools they're using and the frameworks and so forth. And so they'll try to, like, you know, control those levers um, in order to get a better outcome. 
but but what we found as consultants is that if you actually like hire very high, highly skilled developers, placing arbitrary constraints on them will only actually increase your costs and then reduce your outcome because you're going to have less happy developers who are less less engaged and not able to make the best decision for whatever your product needs to be. Um, so, so we talk a lot to clients about let's eliminate those arbitrary constraints and focus instead on like what's getting done and and make them very well equipped to define for us very clearly what they need built, you know, and how it can start producing value. And so we just try to align like how people actually work with that. And so I think that it's a reflection on the fact that we're not trying to arbitrarily control people because every week we get, you know, feedback from clients about whether they're happy or not. Uh, and if they're not, then we can remediate it and not too much has been wasted in the result. That is really cool. So, so would you say that some clients are, they're using control, they're creating controlling mechanisms because that gives them confidence that they'll get the outcomes they want. Whether that really gets them the outcomes they want or not, it at least gives them some sense of control and an ability to get some of the outcomes that they want which might be things like, hey, they're working on my stuff and they're doing what I want, but that right. is not necessarily getting them the real outcome they want, which is working software that meets their business needs and solves it's, problems. It's the, uh, the, the uh, there's, a, there's a fancier quote along these lines, but it's the old saw, uh, uh, looking busy does not equal being productive. Um, but when we see people who look busy um, and busy in the way that we understand it best, we assume that they're marching in the right direction. Uh, and software, because it's not tangible, but it's often conveyed in tangible terms, like a lot of our analogies are about building stuff. And, and a lot of people's common conception about software is it's a whole bunch of building blocks, like objects, and you're putting it all together. Um, so it, when you combine that with just traditional, like, you know, time and materials contracting arrangements, they want to purchase it from you just like they'd purchase, you know, a, uh, a kitchen remodel. And, and so the difference, obviously, is that a kitchen remodel, when it's partway through in process, uh, uh, it's a very well-understood problem. It can only get to be so big. And so when you get an estimate from, from contractors, they are probably very, very confident within 10% of, like, what their costs are going to be. And so they can factor that in. But with software, you know, there, there are just all these invisible bottomless holes everywhere that to try to like you know identify that all of that stuff up front to give them real confidence about things that really matter is impossible. So instead, you can only really give a ton of confidence up front about things that are arbitrary. Yeah. So when I look here, the the building or construction metaphor, like we've been humans have been building stuff for a long, long time. Right. We're doing it pretty well, and we still have pyramids, and we still have Roman ruins. Like there's thousands of years of history here of constructing stuff with our hands and making it appear in this physical form and reality. And software doesn't have nearly that. Uh, we really just don't have the expertise that maybe we sometimes pretend that we do. Um, and I know that those metaphors kind of drive me crazy a lot. Like software is like, ar you know, software design is like architecture and creating yeah. software is like construction and an object is like a box and you put stuff in the box. And like, why can't software just be making software? And why can't an object be just an object and leave it at that and say, yeah, maybe it takes your, <laughs> a little while to wrap your head around like that, but do the metaphors really help people? Do the metaphors help people more understand it better, or do the metaphors kind of hurt more? 
That's something I've I've struggled with for a long time. I, I I've written a lot of like long form blog posts that mercifully I hope no one's really read that struggle with those questions because I think that the fundamental isn't so much that we as humans don't have a lot of experience building the expertise to grapple with these metaphors appropriately. It's that, like you said, humans have been building something, building things for so long that it's literally been baked into our evolutionary process. So uh, we're not going to be able to rewire our brains overnight to suddenly pivot from understanding very clearly what physical, tangible building process looks like uh, uh, and map that then to the progress of building intangible things. So um, I think Agile was very successful at at least being results-oriented enough to demo, you know, like apparently working stuff on a very regular basis to like tighten the feedback loop because the feedback loop in nature is our eyeballs see how tall the pyramid is. And, and it's it's instantaneous, um, but even getting down to like you know weekly and daily show and tells of the stuff that we're building that's user visible, uh, even that includes a lot of sleights of hand because there's other complexities like you know maybe cross cutting concerns like security, logging, auditing, all that stuff that's kind of gets gets pushed around, uh, and the the invisibility of it I think is always going to be something that no amount of 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 expertise is going to really solve for us as long as our lizard brains are hardwired for tangible, you know, building. That is that is so cool. It makes kind of really clarifies things. First of all, I love your blog. I've been following it for a long time, and I really like the work that you do and Test Level does. So, anybody listening, is definitely go check out your blog. But the you know thing, looking at the pyramids, I've never seen the pyramids in person, and I really want to one day. But I imagine that, like, you can look at it and, like you said, you take it in instantaneously. And there's this impression that you get immediately of, wow, you know. And, and that's kind of the baseline, but you get it, and then there's something that you can build on. You can think about the historical context. You can look at it in today's context. You can see how it has informed construction principles over the years and how many people have studied it in Indiana Jones movies and all kinds of stuff. And it's just kind of enriching that one image that you have. Yeah. And you can't do that in software. You, you know what you just said gets to a really awesome other point that I hadn't considered, which is that um, the metaphor of building a single pyramid, right, as applied to building a single software project, uh, is obviously broken, right? Just tangible, not tangible. But if you look at just the, the lineage of software developers, the several generations of people building software, Building, you know, look at the pyramids, like, you know, the very first pyramids that got built were very rudimentary and are probably gone. Um, uh, eventually they got really good on a meta level of learning how to build it better as time went on because not only could they track the tangible um, progress of each of those individual pyramids, but they could, like, you know, apply very clearly, like, observe lessons learned uh, uh, as they went from pyramid to pyramid. One of the things that I think is incredibly frustrating to anyone who looks at software really closely is how quickly we forget the lessons that we've learned from the past. You know, everyone's always joking about how all the great ideas were from the 60s and 70s and all those papers had already solved everything we're dealing with today. And I think it's like, it's simply because in this intangible mindset, the most we can hope to hold on to is like the last project or two's worth of lessons. Yeah. Unless we're able to formalize something into a tool. And, yeah, and we like we joke about the, those good ideas, but I don't. When people say that, I don't think that they're really joking. I think it's like 
it's just that really kind of self, just trying to cope with things and be like, yeah, all right, so people really did like know this stuff in the 60s and 70s and what the heck happened? How did, how did we get here? But that's something that you have talked about in your, you had a metaphor that I loved of like a Jenga tower and yeah. the, how knowledge is kind of like different levels in a building which may have been a metaphor coming from somewhere else, but you described it as a Jenga tower. Can you tell us a little more about that? Well, talking about what we just said, which is like the, the, the human lessons learned from project to project is a form of legacy, right? There's like all of these sedimentary layers of things we've learned as software engineers over the last 50 years uh, that, that inform our practice of it. You know, it's, it's, it's informed how people write code and what people think about the structure of code. And granted, you know, it's taken a lot of weird, mostly capitalism-inspired detours uh, away from maybe, you know, the pure and holy uh, idea of ideal design. But the Jenga tower metaphor was more about the physical, the more tangible um, layers that we stand on top of, which are, you know, represent the stuff closer to the metal in the stack in the call stack of the systems that we build today. You know, so if I'm building a, uh, a new Ruby on Rails system, it means that I'm standing on top of 75 to 100 different Ruby gems, and some of those have C bindings, right? Into, like writing into C, not to mention Ruby itself written into C, which compiles down to all these different targets and involves all of these other libraries, some of them 20, 30, 40 years old. And there's this tremendous stack that we're standing on top of, of physical assets that have been built long, long ago and we're getting to the point now where it's been several generations of just people working on Unix that there are layers in that tower that literally no humans understand anymore. Um, or, or such a vanishingly small number of them uh, that it represents this really, you know, bizarre, it, a sense of risk, even though things keep on seem to, like, even though there's a ton of churn at the top, it seems like it's not falling over, and understanding why everything isn't falling over constantly is... Uh, one of the great mysteries, I think, of our time. You know, the thing that jumps to my mind when, when you say that uh, not understanding things fully and it representing risk is OpenSSL and mm. how mm -hmm. we had, like, three major exploits last year alone and everybody's sitting here, like, looking at the little lock icon in the browser thinking, hey, I'm good, the Internet's safe. <laughs> and three times in one year people are looking around like, guys, does this, does this thing even work? Like, what, what's going on here? Yeah. And something that is just so fundamental and core to our interactions over the internet that, you know, here in, here in 2015, hopefully we don't get <laughs> another really bad one. Yeah. I mean, that's, the, that's a great example because security is the kind of thing that remains a moving target. A lot of those other layers beneath us uh, if, if, the, if the code doesn't seg fault, then it's fine. <laughs> you know, no one, no one needs to ever look at that library again uh, or that binding. Um, but with security concerns, especially libraries very concerned with security, I think the OpenSSL bugs have taught us, like, the fact that these are shoestring teams written, run by volunteers and maybe there's only two or three people that are very close to them makes them very, very easy to exploit and penetrate. Um, uh, even social engineering, right? Like somebody could, and there, there were a couple articles about uh, a potential NSA or other, you know, state operatives 
actually joining to commit to OpenSSL under the auspices of just a hobbyist, right? That is freaking me the hell out right now. That suggestion. That yeah. Okay. They're literally the only people who have a financial interest in contributing to OpenSSL. Yeah. It's tragedy of the commons. Wow. Wow. That is crazy to think about. <laughs> Next time on Tinfoil Hats with Pat and Justin. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, hide your kids, hide your wife. They gonna come for you. <laughs> uh, wow. So, I, okay. What? So you said there's like 70, 75 gems and all kinds of bindings and stuff. And one of the things that you've talked about multiple times is this... No, is dependencies, and anybody who's been in software for a while knows about dependencies and kind of basically how they come to bite you several times a day. But for first thing, like for Rails, because I know Rails is super popular, I love it, and lots of people love it and want to keep using it or learn to start using it. Do you know of anything that, of any talks or any articles that really walks you through? everything that is like the first level of dependencies in Rails, like not even getting into the hidden or transitive dependencies, yeah. but just like, here's Rails, if you want to know what it directly depends on, here's the whole massive list, and if you want to go deeper down the rabbit hole, go for it. Um, do you know of anything like that? That's a really good one. I think that maybe, uh, I don't have anything offhand, but I bet you that if you were to rewind a few years to um, the Rails and Merb merge, like when mm -hmm. Rails 3 was being announced, uh, that was the moment in time where obviously a bunch of stuff got yanked out of monolithic Rails into gems for the first time. Um, and so if you look at, you know, uh, obviously you, you create a new Rails project today, your gem file will have a bunch of stuff in it, and those are the direct dependencies, and anyone is welcome to explore through what each of those things is. Uh, and I think that the main main ones, you know, uh, what is action pack, what is active support, what is active record, are fairly well understood and well documented by, you know, intermediate level Rails, Rails folks and above. Uh, but I've got a feeling like uh, when the Rails 3 architecture was a new idea, that's probably where there's a lot of writing and presentation. Uh, that's still, you know, mostly accurate today. Cool. Well, I will definitely look into that because it's, that's just a really interesting thing to think about because I'll say straight up, like, I don't know all the dependencies that Rails has. You know, I have, like, generally... I have generally an idea of what I'm doing and, and the dependencies I'm going to be working with and stuff, but really, like, to... I have no idea even the scope of it, like, how many, how many gems are pulled in, you know, entirely and, like, how many bindings and how many different pieces, how many different discrete pieces of software and discrete code bases are integrated into an individual project that we call a Rails new application, you know? One of the things that I like to envision it, because I've been doing a lot of um, lighter weight Node.js stuff in the last couple of years, um, and by lighter weight I mean you know, each new dependency is typically added by me, um, and uh, I have to you know, go through the trouble of vetting each of those myself uh, bef before I can move forward in any number of vectors. But Rails represents kind of like not just a big collection of dependencies that we get, like as if they're all just thrown at us haphazardly. It solves a very common problem of I, I need to put stuff on the web, an API or an HTML page that's dynamically generated from data, and because it's a very common problem and because there's a team that's like, I think, very well-oiled from the perspective of open source writ large, 
they are curators for us. That garden of 50 to 75 gems, there is a team that cares a great deal about everything that goes into Rails uh, and is pretty judicious about what's in and what's out and understands the components inside of it well enough for us and how they work together um, or, and when they don't. Whereas I think that if you kind of, you know, start fresh with your own small little thing, that job of, you're, you're insourcing that job of curating all these dependencies and making sure that they play nicely together and how you're uh, orchestrating all that. And that's, that's an added cost that a lot of people, I think, don't take into account when they make an argument like, frameworks are good, frameworks are bad. Yeah, so those, so the gems, all the dependencies that go into Rails, a lot, the, and a lot of the decisions overall, just represent maybe not a best of the best, but certainly a highly effective and vetted collection of software that's put into practice by the core team, the people thinking about this stuff, and then kind of validated repeatedly in usage by developers all over the world who. Right are able to not think about that stuff and, and dedicate their time and their brain energy to creating a unique application that, that right. does something useful. Yep, yeah, that's the idea. So with your, so I want to kind of go back to your business stuff a little bit here, because you said something like, we have like great consultants who are also really good coders. What, was that right? Yeah. Um, or you can know, also I think... make software well or something. Uh, we don't we don't have any sort of like sweet marketing copy lately about our company. Um, although I think it's something that we want to spend more time on. But I think what I said was that we have like all of the agents at Test Double are are great business consultants first, and they just happen to write great software. Wait um, a minute, are your employees are they they're called Test Double agents? Yeah, <laughs> I love it. It's true. Uh, and they all get assigned numbers, so like it was like a big deal when we hired 007. Yeah. And then it was another yeah. big deal when we got our tenth one because I wanted to go to like uh, some sort of like 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 hex or base 26 or something, so we could do like <laughs> 00A, 00B. Yeah. And then uh, my business partner Todd Kaufman he trumped me because on the actual Ian Fleming Wikipedia page there was apparently a 0011 <laughs> and a 0012. Oh, so you got to get there. You can't deny people their chance to go down. Yeah. So, so I think we're at 0014 right now, which means we beat Ian Fleming's legacy. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so, so what sort of uh, like what sort of technical chops do? Because there, I hear like two kind of sides of it. There's a consultant business management kind of side that people have, and then they have, I assume they have technical chops too. So, starting from the tech side, what what are the technical chops that people bring to that test double agents bring to the table? Yeah. So, so I mean, um, what I will say is that the from the perspective of our clients, the fact that our people are really business consultants and they're there to help them understand software and how software can best serve them, that's the first priority. From the perspective of our developers, you know, that they be able to write software well and be focused and be building the right thing. Uh, that's their first priority, and I think that the meeting in the middle so that they can be good uh, uh, consultants to their clients is mostly about helping those clients identify what's the right thing to build as opposed to only worrying about building the thing right. Um, uh, on the technical side, we we tend to de-emphasize in, in importance, you know, like that we only code this language or we only do things this way because we don't want to develop like a mono culture. Of like we're just a you know 
cookie cutter rail shop or we don't want to claim like we've got a really clear uh, vision of, of, you know, we don't have a pivotal way equivalent of we always use this set of tools on every single project because we just don't believe that we have that solved and, and there's a lot of benefit in the diversity of different technologies out there. So all of our people, I think, our polyglots are very flexible, are very hungry to learn new stuff, um, and, and I really appreciate that. Um, but obviously we can't have everyone just coding in every single language under the sun and have it be to the point of being arbitrary either. Uh, so what we've settled on, uh, settled on is too strong a word, what we see most often are uh, you know, projects that are very straightforward, CRUD applications where Ruby and Rails are a great fit because, because Rails makes it very easy to get to an MVP if you've got a basic CRUD application. We've got um, a lot of people who have a lot of great skills at building single page apps for you know, browser as a runtime front, front end applications uh, in, in Angular and Ember. Um, We've got uh, a lot of people now who have a lot of experience in Node.js. Uh, you know, Node brings a lot of complexity and a lot of problems for how easy it is to get started. So we're just seeing a lot of pain out there that uh, you know, companies who've, who've gone out there and spent a year or two building something in Node.js find that they need help upping the level of craftsmanship and care and factoring into it later. And that's something that we're really good at helping with. Um, We've got a few people, a couple pairs working on Clojure and Clojure Script and uh, uh, Reagent, and they really like that stuff. Um, and I think that pretty much covers most of what we're working on, but we're really open to just about anything. Yeah, I could see how you guys would, even with a kind of inflexible, very trust-based, do what you want, you know, focus on solving the business problem in a way that is sustainable and that we can build upon and, um, and feel good about, you, people naturally have a vested in, interest in kind of congregating around certain technologies because right. if I'm the only one using something, then I can't ask anybody else on the team for help and I can't ask if anybody's run into this problem before and see it. I, I can but we'll be grasping at straws, looking to draw parallels between stuff. The, the context switching cost, and then what happens if Pat goes away and he wrote everything in, in Perl, and no one else is an expert in Perl, you know, then, then that represents a risk to that client. Um, uh, yeah, that comes up a lot. We, we have, uh, I forgot to mention, we have a few people who are really great iOS and Android experts, and they carry with them, you know, a lot of shared opinions about how to do native mobile well. When... You know, there's tons of different approaches. Like you can go down like the phone gap or the Ruby Motion approach, and our teams have generally decided to just go with official SDKs. Uh, and having them all agree on that has been, you know, critical to them working together. That kind of really brings kind of brings me back to some stuff from earlier about like how do we write good code and stuff. And kind of an example that you brought up here is Node, and now running into the problem of Companies not having well-architected and designed applications. And I think that is kind of just a pattern of when a new hot framework comes out, you get a lot of people writing it, and people haven't really understood the patterns and use cases yet. But essentially, people haven't screwed up enough to know what is bad, and so you end up with some applications which are really bad and need rescuing. And I know people that today in 2015 make a really good living from rescuing Rails applications. Right. You know, from written two, three, five, 
seven years ago here where it's been making money and they like it, but it hasn't been making as much money as they want and now they can't add features, they can't fix bugs, whatever, because it's so hard to work with. And it's, I think it's easy to look at something like that and be like, well, that's just a sucky team of programmers. And maybe it is, but too, it's that nobody on the, maybe the team just didn't have the experience to see where this was going and kind of stop it before things got bad. And now Node is just younger than Rails, and so you kind of see the same sort of thing there. I think that there's, um, I hope this is, doesn't come across too cynically, um, but I feel like whenever, whatever year we're in, there's a most trendy way to approach, you know, a common set of problems. And right now, Node, because it's got a very, very low barrier of entry, and because it's um, just popular for X reasons, uh, ha is the trendy one that a lot of people flock to immediately, regardless of whether they critically thought about their needs or not. So certainly, some proportion of people are there because they critically thought that, like, and, and went through an evaluation and realized Node was the right bet for them. And some other proportion of people, which I personally think is larger, are there because, you know, the zeitgeist told them that it's 2015, people do Node now. And wherever the kind of zeitgeist herd flows, if you're a consultant, <laughs> uh, keeping an eye on that and not necessarily embracing it, but keeping up to date with it will help you do a couple things. One, uh, uh, interface with that community and meet them where they are and apply the wisdom and experience that you've gained by, by being able to help those folks. Uh, who are working in that, you know, whatever the trendiest technology is. And B, to your point, it generates, just by virtue of being really popular, you know, future rescue projects where a company, you know, maybe they were a startup and they only had a little bit of money or only had a little bit of time and they just had to get something out the door. Rescue projects are going to be born out of whatever the popular technology is for that class of applications. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that's cynical at all. It sounds like... If, if you're an experienced developer and you love money and you don't mind staring at horrible, awful code days on end, then follow those trends and just go by with your dust broom and sweep up behind and rake in those piles of cash, you know? It's not just about money, though. I think it's also about um, impact. You know, I think that there are a ton of people who have been writing Lisp professionally for a while Mm. Um, but haven't really been able to break out of the community that that they're in. Um, uh, and it's not just about making money so much as it's like, what's their legacy going to be? The answer is, I don't know, because not very many people hear about them because they're in this very small community unto themselves. Um, so, so I really love, like, for example, one of the first things I did in the community was share a lot of what I learned about test-driven development and testing. And I intentionally spent a lot of time talking to the JavaScript community about that stuff because I just saw that there were, you know, in terms of bang for my buck as, as a person sharing free information, there were thousands of JavaScript developers for every, I don't know, you know, Clojure user that I, that I could also make the same argument to. Um, and so if I want to have a big impact on a lot of developers and just share what I've learned in a way that's constructive and helpful and beneficial to their careers, I need to go to where they are. Um, and that's not about money, it's about, um, I don't know what you want to call it, legacy or, or impact, but a big reason why I do this is I want to help the world write software better. I like that, I like that a lot. I love that, um, impact and, and helping people. And maybe I'm the cynical one there, because 
like re rescue projects, I, I can't do them. I mean, I'm technically capable of doing them, but I don't have the mental and emotional fortitude to get through them. Um, I've done I've done stuff and like showed up the first day and then gone home, just like rubbing my eyes and saying, "Wait, I have to go do that again tomorrow." <laughs> Whatever I got yeah. myself into, and so maybe that's one reason that I am particularly happy and feel at home with the Ruby community, is that there is a just a general interest in writing good software and getting better and looking for ways to improve. And we're, we're, we always succumb to some kind of new hotness sometimes, too. But there's generally like, a, hey, we're looking to do things better. And it's just an extraordinarily helpful, open community looking to share whatever they learn and recognize, you know, recognize mistakes in hindsight and share that with people. And so it creates this whole spectrum of you can, if you want to work on rescue projects and if you want to bail a business out and if you want to bail a team out and help them improve and show them how to do their work better, you can do that. And if you want to step into a code base that is nice and clean and tight and has been TDD'd and refactored for years, you can do that too. And yeah. whatever, you know, it's just kind of a nice menu of, of interesting, rewarding software projects to work on. Yeah, and I think that, that variety is sort of the spice of life. Um, I, I like that one reason I like consulting is I like having a ton of novel experiences every year doing a ton of different types of projects. Um, and I think my own personal success on each of them, whether, like, like I get, depending on the situation, I might get as stressed out and worried and nervous about a totally greenfield project than a big legacy rescue one because sometimes legacy rescue projects are great when everyone goes in eyes wide open, you know, they acknowledge their baby's ugly. They realize that that estimating how long any given thing is going to take is extremely wary. Um, uh, that can be really awesome. But then you know you can go to a greenfield project where you know you're in total and utter control of everything, and whether or not you're excited about that is as much a function of your own personal confidence and your ability to structure things well and cleanly on your own uh, as anything else. And sometimes I have that confidence, and sometimes I just get like blank slate syndrome. I stare at the white page and I'm like, oh crap, how do I write code again? <laughs> totally. I think that the, the key difference there is the scope of the decisions that you make. That mm. with a Greenfield project, you can go anywhere and you have every opportunity to implement everything you know, in any way, but more than that, it's the business decisions that you make. Nobody goes into a Greenfield project with a reasonable expectation of reality in my mind. They have like this, they have this huge idea that they want to build. Everybody's excited and maybe they get going really quick and they kind of get returned to them. But it's like, oh, this is so great. And, but because some of the early decisions may have been kind of shaky and not based on a real deep understanding of the business value, when, once you kind of elucidate that business value over time, then you look at some of those decisions and go, ah, if I had known that, I wouldn't have done it. Whereas with, let's say, a rescue project, they, there's a real deep understanding, at least, of the business value that it provides, which mm -hmm. allows you to prioritize things. Say, like, hey, you know, let's say that like, we could accomplish one of these two things in all the time that we have. Which one do you want to do? And for a 
for software that actually delivers business value, that can be a fairly easy decision to make. You know, we say we care more about that than we care about that. We'd love to have both, but if I got to pick one, then that's the one. And in a greenfield project, you'll have the customer saying, "Why do I need to pick one? <laughs> Why can't I have it all?" You know, yeah, they haven't yeah. like gotten that dose of reality yet. That's a good point. Thank you, Justin. Yes, I, I'm. I'm, th I'm thinking more about it now, and I just I feel like. Uh, at the end of the day, it comes back to the beginning, which is that both are full of uncertainty. And there's, um, you know, one of the things I liked about how extreme programming was first taught to me was that uh, a great way to sort your backlog, if all other things are equal in the backlog, is start with the most uncertain thing first and whittle that down and use spikes to, like, reduce the amount of uncertainty. Um, if whether it's a legacy refactor or whether it's a new thing, they are both highly uncertain uh, endeavors, and the tools that we can use to reduce that uncertainty are very different. You know, like if it's a greenfield thing, you can reduce a ton of uncertainty about what it needs to be through, you know, kind of like lean startup, lean UX uh, validation exercises. And if it's a refactoring thing, then we can do all sorts of interesting die tests and characterization tests just to get a sense of, you know, how big of a thing we're dealing with um, uh, to, to reduce the uncertainty about how much effort, how much time, how much money it would take to, to, to get the results that are desired by the project. I, I really like that because one of the things that I have fo learned to focus on over the course of my career it, when we talk about a project from the beginning is identify the things that represent the most uncertainty and the most risk and tackle that first. And I think that it's, because it's very very common I've seen for people to not do that and work on what looks most interesting to them or is going to give mm -hmm. them kind of quick returns and they push all the risk and all the uncertainty to the end, which is the worst because you get to the end and you go, wait a minute, that's the keystone to the arch and it doesn't fit. Yeah, or, I, don't, I don't have an arch. I just have a pile of rocks here that 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 doesn't fit together. Path of least resistance, right? I mean, like these are, and this is why the emphasis on business consultants I think is valuable because, like, the path of least resistance when the going gets tough is to just like kind of like blind yourself to that really awkward and frustrating, risky thing and do the stuff you understand. I was on a project several years ago that was building uh, for a higher education, like a really cool interactive. Um, uh, a service that let students and teachers kind of share course readings together um, and, and highlight and, and do notes and stuff. And in that, in, in that particular industry, uh, the content is king. You know, like the format of the documents and how they're all stored and how you're going to get those documents and structure and transform them and get them into your app is by far the hardest problem. But because that involved like 15 departments of humans, we're like, yeah, well, okay, we'll just put one guy off on that and work on that asynchronously as we build this platform that actually enables the, the viewing and the module and all the interactivity. Uh, so we actually built the whole working thing, and then at the very end, of course, naturally, the content didn't fit. Um, and we had to you know, do tons of rework to mitigate that that could have been dealt with up front if we just forced ourselves to answer the hard questions in that case about the data. Yeah, it seems like theoretically software a software project should get easier, not harder, because you start the project at the right. peak of your ignorance. You have no idea what's around the corner, 
and as you get to the end, you've you've distilled knowledge down. And um, there's actually like uh, Dan North wrote about deliberate discovery, where they would like write, they would work for a week, and then they throw it away and write it again for a week, and then kind of see how far they got. And eventually, they're like, okay, we can't get any farther in a week, so let's use this as our new baseline and build on that. Mm. Uh, and go from there. I thought that was really cool, and you know, I've used it in like katas and and workshops and stuff like that, but not like to the extent that they did on a project. Um, he's a cool dude. So I I want to start wrapping up here, dude. This has been so awesome, um, really helpful, and I kind of want to I want to bring this back to how you opened this really, which is that you've noticed that good developers tend to be introspective and thinking about their process and always looking for good. Uh, was kind of looking for validation that they're writing good code and, and they're following a good process and using their tools effectively. I think that's hard. Uh, how, how, like, nobody gives you a certificate and says, like, hey, you're a good programmer now, and there's, like, no kind of crossover point where you just know, and even then, even if you've been shipping for a long time, there's uncertainty and anxiety and kind of stemming from a desire to improve. But how, how does a developer, particularly new developers and novices that really struggle with this, how do they kind of determine that they're on the right track and writing good code? Or more likely, recognizing that they write horrible code, but it's a little less horrible than the code they wrote yesterday, and that's okay because the code they write tomorrow will be even a little less horrible than that. Yeah, I'm actually um, I'm stewing on exactly these questions right now for um, a talk I'm giving at RailsConf next month called uh, Sometimes a Controller is Just a Controller. Um, and it's really kind of an ode to boring and obvious code. Uh, because one of the things that I've observed in my career uh, is, is simply that because I can't objectively validate that my code is good, and I think it's because code has two jobs. Code must function well. It must, like, when I click the button, money comes out or whatever. Um, uh, that can be measured objectively. And you can optimize all sorts of, and quantify so many interesting things about the function of code. But code has a second job, which is its communication. It's communication to myself in the future, to my teammates right now, to whoever's going to maintain this after me. And because those two responsibilities are conflated, I mean, the code itself in that sense is an SRP violation, right? Uh, because those are conflated, we can't judge objectively and quantifiably what is good code without getting really deep into, I guess, like information sciences about communication. At the end of the day, we have to write to our audience. Um, and if code does its two jobs well enough, like functions well enough, and I can still understand what it's doing when I read it, you know, that needs to be good enough for, for a lot of people and a lot of teams who I think may tend to, by default, continue to oscillate and continue to ruminate on what would Gary Bernhardt do? What would, what would Aaron Patterson do? You know, look up to kind of like the, 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 the highly visible people in their community and buy all the books and consume all of the advice about how to structure their code because we continue to seek that external validation at, 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 as a result of the fact that we just can't know whether or not our stuff is good enough. I, I love that. I've always thought of software and, and code specifically as a communication tool first and foremost. And if you look, writing is hard. Writing in your native language, which you've been doing since you were a child, is hard and it's difficult to communicate. 
So why would writing in a computer language be easy at all? Like, I don't understand why anybody expects that they can just pick it up when you consider that it's a form of writing with very specific rules and outcomes uh, that is in some ways a lot harder than kind of natural language writing and in other ways easier because you kind of have more directed stuff. And it's, um, it's important too from an empathy perspective to recognize that uh, us as people who live in the United States who speak English natively have a tremendous privilege over all the people in the world who don't speak English natively because English is the lingua franca of all of these programming languages, right? Yeah. Um, uh, not to mention the documentation and most of the supporting information. So to the extent that code is communication, everyone who doesn't speak English natively is at a huge, tremendous disadvantage um, that they have to overcome. And some of the programmers I know from other countries or, or who speak other uh, languages natively have done so excellently that I often discount that fact <laughs> that they had to come a lot further than I did to understand as much as they do about uh, the communication side of, of, of software. Yeah, it's crazy. I, I, as, a native, as a native English speaker born in the USA, I had never considered that. So to all my international programmer buddies, I salute you. Uh, so if you have one or, two, one or two minutes left, I would like to know for anybody listening who is, is listening to this right now and says, hey, test double sounds really cool. Uh, I would love to work at a place where I work with other people that we trust and that I can have the time for myself and make decisions and really have opportunity to exert control over your own career. Um, but it's maybe like years away from developing the technical chops and the business acumen to make that a reality. What are three things that you would tell them to do to... Uh, to, to focus on to get from where they are to a place where they could interview at test double and become test double agent number 15? Yeah, well, um, first of all, I think that anyone who takes time out of their day to listen to a podcast about how to write software better uh, obviously has already show, demonstrated that they care, right, about improving themselves. So, there, so anybody listening is already on their way in one respect. Yeah, and so I think that the most important advice that somebody could give them is to make sure that the um, the things that they've placed in their life as it pertains to software are furthering that down the path. Like if they're on a team where people don't care as much about writing software well as they do, you know that that's obviously going to work against their goal of getting better. Um, I've seen a lot of people who have that kind of spark who do seek out, you know learning about how to write software better, who finally find a team where they're surrounded by not necessarily like-minded individuals, but similarly like highly motivated learners who are super hungry to do things well, um, get them in a room together and, and work on a, uh, on a project together, and then have all of them just level up tremendously uh, to the point where you can't believe that like, you know, over the course of six months they gained what appear to be years of experience. Um, so, so finding a team that, that cares as much as you do is probably the first thing I'd suggest. Um, second thing is probably start to um, give back, even in a very basic way. Uh, a lot of the beginners I know who become very successful uh, recognize that a mentor or a coach is on the same journey, you know, as the people that they're mentoring and coaching. And usually you only have to be a couple hours ahead of somebody to offer something useful to the person behind you. Uh, so whether that means 
literally coaching and mentoring people who are who are a little bit more junior than you and using that to hone your ability to communicate and understand the things that you've learned or whether it means you know blogging or somehow articulating and forcing yourself to solidify that stuff uh, or uh, uh, maybe sharing open source of useful things that, that that you're writing or jumping into open source projects and offering to help you know tackle issues um, giving back the actual act of pushing up what you're learning as you learn it can be tremendously valuable um, uh, to your own benefit as well as building the network that you would need to convince other people that you're credible which because code isn't objective is almost as important as the intrinsic skills that you do develop um, uh, third thing uh, I guess subscribe to Ruby steps that's what I'm supposed <laughs> to say that told me I had to Checks in the mail, homie. Check is in the mail. Problem. Uh, Justin, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. I know I could talk with you for hours more, um, but you got that company to run, so I'll let you go. <laughs> but before, right. before we let you go, where, where can people fo follow you, get a hold of you, check out what you're up to, and... and yep. And more knowledge from you. So you can find me. Um, so my wife's a teacher, so she's learned a bunch of mnemonics. You can find me on Twitter by following my last name, which is Searles, and uh, you can spell Searles just like the word pearls, but with an S instead of a P. Uh, and uh, you can reach me out at the much easier to spell Justin at testdouble.com. Uh, and if you're interested in joining the company, um, uh, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, or if you work at a company and you think that, like you know. Uh, having some expert engineers come in and work alongside you uh, would, would be beneficial. Contact me as well, because we're always looking for new projects. So you're hiring and you're available for hire. Yes. Great. I love Why it. Why not both? <laughs> Why not? Thanks so much, Justin. It was great having you on. I'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Take care. Well, there you have it. Plenty of Searles of Wisdom. And I know he hates that, but I'm just being shellfish. No time to clam up. I want to flex my linguistic muscles. Thanks a lot for listening. Tell all your friends. RubySteps.com slash podcast. Check it out on iTunes. You'll get instant updates. And go ahead and leave a comment because I would love to hear what you think about the show. See you next time on the Ruby Steps podcast.